Hello, my name is Roger O'Keefe of the University of Cambridge and in this particular lecture I'll be talking on the rise of individual criminal responsibility under international law. The material I'm talking about today is more in the nature of a story and so I imagine that not all of you will necessarily want to sit there and take copious and conscientious notes. Uh, rather, I hope you relax and simply listen. So, viewers, uh, fasten your seatbelts, sit back and enjoy the ride as we talk about the rise of individual criminal responsibility under international law. Now there's also a substantive preface to what I say today and that is as follows. The threshold question of whether individuals can be held criminally responsible under international law at all is often conflated in the earlier literature with the subsequent question whether individuals can rightly be held criminally responsible for certain breaches of international law, arguably better seen as a state's alone, and in which they participated solely in their capacity as organs and officials of that state. The two issues will be treated separately in this lecture. In turn, the second question is sometimes confused with a further question, namely whether government officials, even if they can in principle be held individually criminally responsible under international law for so-called acts of state should be entitled to a procedural immunity in respect of international crimes committed in the exercise of their official functions. This further question will not be discussed here, although as I understand it is broached elsewhere in the audiovisual library. A terminological clarification is also in order. I will be using the terms national law, municipal law, domestic law synonymously. In other words, they all mean the same thing. The law applied at the national level as distinct from the law applied by an international court or indeed simply international law. Well, let's now first look at the principled question the threshold question of individual criminal responsibility under international law. Well, the history of individual criminal responsibility under international law is one of conceptual cross-currents and a considerable degree of confusion. The crime of piracy, jure gentium, that is piracy within the meaning of customary international law, was the first to which the label international crime or previously offence against the law of nations, came to attach. This crime predates international law in its identifiably modern form, having its origins in the various bodies of medieval maritime law applied in the different European courts, which eventually coalesced into a general maritime law that ultimately formed part of the 17th century jus gentium, or law of nations, known to Grotius. But while Grotius is traditionally considered the father of international law, his jus gentium was not international law in the way it came classically to be conceived after Vittel in the 18th century, being more in the nature of what we would today call a transnational law, that is, binding on states, as only sketchily conceived by Grotius, and individuals alike. With the consolidation in the late 18th to early to mid-19th century of the classical law of nations, avowedly having as its subjects only states, it is more accurate to say that piracy on the high seas, rather than being prohibited by the law of nations, 
was an offence which, as defined by the law of nations, every state was permitted to criminalise and prosecute under its domestic law. That said, to the extent that the trial of piracy by an international tribunal applying international law remained inconceivable in the prevailing state of international organisation, the distinction was for all intents and purposes meaningless. One could equally have said that the law of nations did indeed outlaw piracy with the natural consequence, as it was seen at the time, that each state, in the application of its own law, was permitted to punish the offence as internationally defined. The description offences against the law of nations was often applied to crimes such as attacks on foreign ambassadors and violations of safe conducts granted to foreign merchants and travellers. In these contexts, the term connated something quite different from its import in relation to piracy, at least from the time of Vettel. It referred to the criminalisation and ultimately punishment under national law of acts constituting a breach of the law of nations by the receiving state, either because these acts were performed by a servant of the state or because they resulted from what we would refer to today as that state's failure of due diligence. In this light, the receiving state's prosecution of the persons responsible for the breach amounted to a form of reparation to the victim's state. In modern terms, we would say that such prosecution acquitted the responsible state's obligation to afford just satisfaction to the injured state. What the term offences against the law of nations did not in this context mean, from the classical era of international law onwards, was that international law itself prohibited individuals from committing the impugned acts. Any such prohibition was under national law alone. As for the laws and customs of war, although in Grotius's times these were directed as much towards individuals as states, states that is in the loose Grotian sense, and although the jurists of the 17th century and earlier envisaged the punishment of individuals who violated these rules, it is simply unclear whether from the late 18th century onwards war crimes implicated individual criminal responsibility under international law itself or whether any such responsibility was under national law alone. What was clear was that the law of nations permitted a belligerent state to try captured enemy servicemen suspected of having violated the laws and customs of war, at the very least when the impugned acts had been committed against the prosecuting state's servicemen or civilians. Such trials, of which there were relatively few, took place before a military tribunal of the custodial state that is, before a municipal or national tribunal. And, depending on the tribunal in question, the applicable law was variously the laws and customs of war or the military penal code of the custodial state. The latter embodied common crimes such as murder, assault, destruction of property, but the enemy combatant was tried for such offences only if he or she was alleged to have committed them in violation of the laws of war. Now in either case it is impossible to discern whether the relevant national rule, in the former instance an implied secondary rule rendering breach of the laws and customs of war punishable as a crime, 
in the latter instance, the provisions of the Military Penal Code, complemented individual criminal responsibility under international law itself or made up for a lack of it. Again, as long as the prosecution of violations of the laws and customs of war before an international tribunal applying international law remained out of the question, it was a distinction without a difference. A belligerent state's right to try enemy combatants for war crimes was recognised in the first codification of the customary laws of war, the famous instructions for the government of armies of the United States in the field, better known as the Lieber Code of 1963, Article 13 of which spoke of the punishment of military offences by national military courts under the common law of war. The matter was put more directly in the so-called Oxford Manual of the Laws of War on Land, prepared in 1880 by the Institut de Droit International, Article 84 of which provided, offenders against the laws of war are liable to the punishments specified in the penal law. The Institut's commentary explained, if any of the foregoing rules be violated, the offending party should be punished after a judicial hearing by the belligerent in whose hands they are. The reference to the penal law in Article 84 was to the penal law of the forum state. No analogous reference found its way, however, into the intergovernmental draft international regulations on the laws and customs of war, better known as the Brussels Declaration of 1874, or more significantly, into either the regulations concerning the laws and customs of war on land, the 1899 Hague regulations, annexed to the Convention Concerning the Laws and Customs of War on Land, or 1899 Hague Convention 2, or into the later regulations concerning the Laws and Customs of War on Land of 1907, annexed to the Convention Concerning the Laws and Customs of War on Land of that year, better known as 1907 Hague Convention 4. Each of these instruments representing an attempt to codify the customary international law of land warfare. Now, Article, 80, sorry, Article 3 of the 1907 Hague Convention provided for state responsibility in respect of the breaches of the annexed regulations committed by persons forming part of that state's armed forces. And Article 56 of the regulations provided that infractions of that particular provision, quote, should be made the subject of legal proceedings, unquote. That is, municipal, although not necessarily penal, proceedings. Nowhere, however, did the Convention refer in general terms to the punishment of individual violators of the laws and customs of war, let alone envisage individual criminal responsibility directly under the Convention, that is, under international law, although it has to be said that it ruled neither out. The right of a belligerent state to prosecute enemy combatants for war crimes was, however, reflected after the First World War in Articles 228 and 229 of the Treaty of Versailles of 1919. Article 228 read, The German government recognises the right of the Allied and Associated Powers to bring before military tribunals persons accused of having committed acts in violation of the laws and customs of war. Such persons shall, if found guilty, be sentenced to punishments laid down by law. Article 229 stated, 
persons guilty of criminal acts against the nationals of one of the allied and associated powers will be brought before the military tribunals of that power. Persons guilty of criminal acts against the nationals of more than one of the allied and associated powers will be brought before military tribunals composed of members of the military tribunals of the powers concerned. Identical provisions, mutatis mutandis, were found in the Treaty of Saint-Germain and in the Treaty of Trianon. Far more controversially, Article 227 of the Treaty of Versailles provided in relevant part, the allied and associated powers publicly arraign William II of Hohenzollern, formerly German emperor, for a supreme offence against international morality and the sanctity of treaties. A special tribunal will be constituted to try the accused. It will be composed of five judges, one appointed by each of the following powers, namely the United States of America, Great Britain, France, Italy and Japan. In its decision, the tribunal will be guided by the highest motives of international policy, with a view to vindicating the solemn obligations of international undertakings and the validity of international morality. It will be its duty to fix the punishment which it considers should be imposed. Again, however, none of this answered the question whether individual criminal responsibility under international law itself was conceptually possible. That is, whether an individual could be prosecuted before an international criminal tribunal applying international law as such, without the need for the interposition of primary or secondary rules of national law. The question of individual criminal responsibility under international law took center stage after the Second World War. In the context of the International Military Tribunal, or IMT, established at Nuremberg, pursuant to the so-called Nuremberg Charter, also known as the London Charter, of 8th of August 1945. The Charter was adopted by the four Allied powers then in occupation of defeated Germany, although a further 19 Allied states expressed their adherence to the agreement to which the Charter was annexed. Article 6 of the Charter provided that crimes against peace, war crimes and crimes against humanity were, quote, crimes within the jurisdiction of the tribunal for which there shall be individual criminal responsibility. And the IMT handed down guilty verdicts in respect of all three categories of crime. Although the Nuremberg Charter was silent as to the IMT's applicable law, the tribunal applied what the drafters of the Charter asserted to be international law. Even if, to obviate challenges to the tribunal's jurisdiction, the term international law as used in earlier drafts, was deliberately omitted from the Charter's final text. But the omission of all relevance to international law did not, in the event, prevent the defence from submitting that international law is concerned with the actions of sovereign states and provides no punishment for individuals. The Tribunal was not required to respond to this submission since it was bound to exercise the jurisdiction ratione materiae vested in it by its charter. Nonetheless, it went out of its way to justify the imposition of individual criminal responsibility under what was claimed to be international law. The tribunal rejected the defence's submission, holding unambiguously that 
individuals can be punished for violations of international law. And it reasoned as follows, that international law imposes duties and liabilities upon individuals as well as upon states has long been recognised. In the recent case of Ex parte Quirin, before the Supreme Court of the United States, persons were charged during the war with landing in the United States for purposes of spying and sabotage. The late Chief Justice Stone, speaking for the court, said, from the very beginning of its history, this court has applied the law of war as including that part of the law of nations which prescribes for the conduct of war, the status, rights, and duties of enemy nations as well as enemy individuals. He went on to give a list of cases tried by the courts where individual offenders were charged with offences against the law of nations and particularly the laws of war. Many other authorities could be cited, <clears throat> but enough has been said to show that individuals can be punished for violations of international law. So spoke the International Military Tribunal. In conclusion, the tribunal relied on robustly instrumental reasoning, declaring famously that crimes against international law are committed by men, not by abstract entities, and only by punishing individuals who commit such crimes can the provisions of international law be enforced. The precise juridical character of the tribunal was ambiguous. On the one hand, as a tribunal, the constitutive instrument of which was an agreement between states, that is a treaty, and which did not form part of the domestic judicial system of any single state, the IMT was by definition an international tribunal. On the other hand, the US, the USSR, the UK and France, the so-called four powers in occupation of defeated Germany, expressly assumed in their Berlin Declaration of the 5th of June 1945, quote, all the powers possessed by the German government, unquote. And the tribunal stated in its judgment that the making of the charter was the exercise of the sovereign legislative power by the countries to which the German Reich unconditionally surrendered, speaking of the right of these countries to legislate for the occupied territories. In short, the four powers claimed to wield, through the tribunal, the criminal jurisdiction of the German state. And the point is that the German government could, as a matter of international law, not only try German nationals for any crimes it so wished, but could do so regardless of whether they were acting on behalf of the German state. That said, the tribunal was at pains to emphasise that the Charter was not an arbitrary exercise of power on the part of the victorious nations, but was the expression of international law existing at the time of its creation. This, however, was problematic since serious doubts existed as to whether the concepts of crimes against humanity and crimes against peace really did reflect customary international law as it stood at the time of commission. In the light of these lingering questions, the General Assembly of the new United Nations Organisation moved quickly to adopt General Assembly Resolution 95-1 of the 11th of December 1946, in which it 
affirmed the principles of international law recognised by the Charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal and the judgment of the Tribunal, thereby settling at a formal level <coughs> debate over these principles claims to the status of positive international law. Even if it has to be said, doubts persisted in scholarly circles until the acceptance by the sixth, that is the legal committee of the United Nations General Assembly, of the International Law Commission's principles of international law recognised in the Charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal and in the judgment of the Tribunal, 1950. In addition, General Assembly Resolution 96-1 adopted the same day as General Assembly Resolution 95-1, that is the 11th of December 1946, affirmed that genocide is a crime under international law for which principals and accomplices are punishable. A statement confirmed and given effect two years later by the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide 1948, especially Articles 1 and 4. Two years later again, <clears throat> Principle 1 of the already mentioned ILC's formulation of the Nuremberg Principles declared that any person who commits an act which constitutes a crime under international law is responsible therefore and liable to punishment. But, and I guess there's always a but, the general acceptance of the possibility of individual criminal responsibility under international law masked a lack of clarity as to its precise juridical basis. In other words, over what it meant to say that individuals can be punished for violations of international law or to characterise conduct as an international crime or a crime under international law or, in the words of General Assembly Resolution 96-1 and the Genocide Convention, a crime under international law. When read as a whole, the Nuremberg Judgment, affirmed as good international law in General Assembly Resolution 95-1, gave conflicting signals. And not even the Genocide Convention was explicit enough to settle the issue. One possible construction of the Nuremberg Judgment was that international law, or to be more precise, its specifically penal content, was capable of imposing obligations on individuals directly, as explicitly asserted by the Nuremberg Tribunal when it declared that international law imposes duties and liabilities upon individuals. And indeed that the very essence of the Charter was that individuals have international duties. And the violation by individuals of their international legal obligations naturally resulted in their international legal responsibility, a responsibility deemed criminal in nature. This explanation of the underlying principle accorded with one reading of the past practice in relation to war crimes. It also explained the imposition of individual criminal responsibility for crimes against humanity in circumstances where the German state had committed no international role, for example, for acts against members of its own population. A possible competing view, however, was that certain egregious breaches of international obligations directed towards and binding on states in the usual way, gave rise to a special secondary rule providing as a function of the state's responsibility for the individual criminal responsibility under international law itself 
of the high government officials who, as the state's controlling mind, procured the breach. At least where the usual reparative mechanisms of state responsibility, namely restitution and or compensation, would for some reason be impossible or unfeasible or would inadequately reflect the moral injury caused. Such an account of the theoretical underpinnings of individual criminal responsibility under international law would explain why, when it came to crimes against peace, the Nuremberg Charter was able to envisage, and the tribunal to conclude, that the major German war criminals were personally liable to punishment for Germany's flagrant violations of the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, which had outlawed, among the state's parties to it, recourse to war as an instrument of national policy. And, to the extent that it could be argued that the defendant willed the breach and that reparation or compensation would be morally inadequate, the same reasoning might be applied to explain how the tribunal was able to hold that individual criminal responsibility arose under international law itself for violations of the laws and customs of war codified in the 1907 Hague Regulations. Such a view would also square with the tribunal's dictum that crimes against international law are committed by men, not by abstract entities, and only by punishing individuals who commit such crimes can the provisions of international law be enforced. Such a view would also chime with the view expressed by Hirsch Lauterpacht, who had been instrumental in the inclusion of this passage in the judgment, having written the part of the UK prosecutor's address from which it was drawn. Lauterpacht stated, in the field of contract, by which he means state responsibility for breach of treaty, and to some extent of tort, by which he means state responsibility for breach of customary international law, the requirements of justice and of international peace can be met by making the corporate entity of the state mainly, if not exclusively, the subject of responsibility. This is not so in the sphere of criminal acts performed by the state, i.e. by persons acting on behalf of the state and under the colour of the authority of the state. The primary subject of the international duty is the human agency which puts in motion the criminal act. Terminologically, it could even be said in accordance with this way of thinking that the international crime or the crime against international law or the crime under international law referred to was the state's egregious breach of its obligations for which the individual high officials could, faute de mieux, be punishable as a matter of international law rather than the individual's breach of an international prohibition directly binding on him or her. Indeed, this seems to be how the term international crime was used in certain interwar international instruments cited by the tribunal. Finally, in a variant of the second approach, one could argue that specific egregious breaches by a state of its international obligations gave rise where the secondary obligations of restitution and compensation on their own would not repair the moral injury to a secondary 
obligation of just satisfaction on the part of that state in the form of an obligation to prosecute the individuals who procured the breach before its own courts. An obligation delegated via the ceding of a corresponding right to prosecute to an opposing belligerent in its capacity as an injured state in the event for whatever reason of the responsible state's default. In other words, individual criminal responsibility for crimes against international law or international crimes could be characterised as a function of state responsibility and additionally as ultimately arising not under international law itself but under national law or in the case of a tribunal constituted by more than one state under a sui generis body of law agreed on for the purpose by those states. Such a reading was made possible by the fact that the Nuremberg Charter, with its absence of any mention of international law and certain passages of the Nuremberg Judgment, could together be interpreted as implicating individual criminal responsibility for violations of international law, not directly under international law as such, but simply under the specific legal framework of the Nuremberg Charter as drafted and agreed on by the four powers even if the content of the latter was asserted to be in accordance with international law. Indeed, the Nuremberg IMT itself stated, the signatory powers created this tribunal and defined the law it was to administer. In doing so, they have done together what any one of them might have done singly. This reading, like the first, also accorded with one characterization of the principles underpinning the past trial of enemy soldiers by national military tribunals. And indeed, the Nuremberg Tribunal sought support for its conclusion that individuals can be punished for violations of international law in the practice of US courts. In addition, such a construction was on a par with the past use of the label offences against the law of nations to refer to internationally wrongful acts such as attacks on ambassadors and violations of safe conducts punishable under national law. Moreover, the grave breaches regime of the four Geneva Conventions of 1949, under which states' parties are obliged to prosecute in their national courts the individual authors of specific aggravated breaches of the conventions, could be taken to lend support for this third approach, as could Article 28 of the 1958 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict, which obliges states' parties, quote, to take within the framework of their ordinary criminal jurisdiction all necessary steps to prosecute and impose penal or disciplinary sanctions upon those persons of whatever nationality who commit or ordered to be committed a breach of the Convention. In the event, the International Law Commission, as subsequently endorsed by the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly, settled on the first rationale, stating in the second paragraph of the commentary to Principle 1 of its Nuremberg Principles that the general rule underlying Principle 1 is that international law may impose duties on individuals directly without any interposition of internal law. Even then, however, the Commission voted six to five against inserting in Principle 1 itself an explicit acknowledgement of the necessary conclusion to be drawn from its commentary, 
namely that the individual is subject to international criminal law. Additionally, the United Kingdom representative to the Sixth Committee fought a rearguard action against the ILC's commentary. He fully agreed that individuals who committed crimes under international law should be subject to trial and punishment, but that aim could be achieved without adopting the theory of the responsibility of the individual under international law. All that was in fact necessary was to establish the position in which the states admitted that the individuals under their jurisdiction would be subject to punishment for certain acts recognised as crimes under international law. In the event, however, he lost and individual criminal responsibility under international law won. Individual criminal responsibility for certain violations of customary international law is now axiomatic. And if it's possible under customary international law, individual criminal responsibility under treaty is possible a fortiori. It is simply a function of the agreement of the state's parties inter se. Moreover, when it comes to customary international law, it is perfectly well accepted that the theoretical rationale for such responsibility is that customary international law binds individuals directly, prohibiting, and in some cases positively mandating, certain conduct by them. So that's the history of the rise of the basic principle of individual criminal responsibility under international law. If you're still awake, there is a little bit left. We must next briefly <clears throat> look at the subsequent question. That is, even if individual criminal responsibility attaches under international law, are there certain violations of international law which are better viewed as violation by a state for which that state alone is responsible, rather than a violation by an individual who works for the state. So, the acceptance of the conceptual possibility of individual criminal responsibility under international law did not necessarily equate with an acceptance that this was the case for all conduct amounting to war crimes and crimes against humanity. It was open to argument that individuals who committed international crimes in their capacity as an organ of state were relieved of responsibility for them. If any responsibility arose from the conduct in question, it was properly to be seen as the states and the states alone. It was also distinctly arguable along related lines that the whole notion of crimes against peace was misconceived in that only states were bound by the Kellogg-Briand Pact, the legal basis for crimes against peace. In the event, perhaps unsurprisingly, the defendants at Nuremberg submitted that where the act in question is an act of state, those who carry it out are not personally responsible. But Article 7 of the Nuremberg Charter had already provided that the official position of defendants, whether as heads of state or responsible officials in government departments, shall not be considered as freeing them from responsibility or mitigating punishment. Moreover, the tribunal concluded, the principle of international law, which under certain circumstances protects the representatives of a state, cannot be applied to acts which are condemned as criminal by international law. The authors of these acts cannot shelter themselves behind their official position in order to be freed from punishment in appropriate proceedings. The very essence of the Charter is that individuals have international duties. He who violates the laws of war 
cannot obtain immunity while acting in pursuance of the authority of the state if the state, in authorising action, moves outside its competence under international law. Now note there that the tribunal's reference to immunity is to substantive and not simply to procedural immunity. And note also that its characterization of the substantive defense in question, that is the defense of active state, as a principle of international law was mistaken, although this, as they say, is another story. The tribunal's conclusion had its critics. Hans Kelsen in particular maintained that while the laws of war bound both individuals and states alike, breaches of these rules committed in pursuance of official policy gave rise to the responsibility only of the latter. Any individual conduct performed as part of that policy was formally an act of state and not of the individual concerned. Furthermore, the Kellogg-Briand Pact bound only states, so that in Kelsen's view, its breach resulted in state responsibility only. He wrote, The various military tribunals tried and punished individuals for acts of illegitimate warfare performed by them as private persons, not as an act of state. The acts forbidden by the Hague Convention, it is true, may be acts of state, as well as acts of private persons performed on their own initiative, not at the command or with the authorization of their government. However, as to its violation by acts of state, the Hague Convention provides only for collective responsibility of states as such. The differences between the Hague Convention on the Rules of Warfare and the Brion Kellogg Pact, as he called it, is that the former can be violated by acts of state as well as by acts of private persons whereas the latter can be violated only by acts of state. The Brion Kellogg Pact does not, as does the Hague Convention, forbid acts of private persons. Kelsen, however, on this occasion, was on the wrong side of history. The Nuremberg Charter and the judgment of the tribunal were affirmed as correct statements of international law by General Assembly Resolution 95-1, a position affirmed by Principle 4, of the ILC's Nuremberg Principles. In the specific context of genocide, the Genocide Convention states in Article 4 that persons committing genocide shall be punished, whether they are constitutionally responsible rulers, public officials, or private individuals. And in reservations to the Convention on Genocide, the International Court of Justice stated in an advisory opinion that the Convention enunciates, quote, principles which are recognized by civilized nations as binding on states, even without any conventional obligation. In short, that at least what might be called the doctrinal provisions of the Convention are consonant with customary international law. Today, there's no doubt that individual criminal responsibility for acts of state is an established proposition of customary international law, having been affirmed many times in subsequent international instruments and documents. As to crimes against peace specifically, Article 6 of the Nuremberg Charter, as endorsed by General Assembly Resolution 95-1, had already implemented the concept, and the tribunal, going out of its way to justify this concept, convicted several of the defendants on this count. It is now beyond doubt that crimes against peace, which today we call the crime of aggression, gives rise to individual criminal responsibility under customary international law, even if it has to be said this statement of principle has, since Nuremberg, proved difficult to translate into practice. 
Well then finally and very briefly, what is the relationship between individual criminal responsibility under international law and the more traditional state responsibility under international law? Well, as already stated, it's now perfectly well established that individual criminal responsibility under international law is a function of the violation by the individual in question of an international legal obligation binding on that individual. This obligation is wholly distinct from any obligation binding on any state on behalf of which the individual may act. The criminal responsibility of individuals under international law is not a function of, nor is it in any way formally implicated by state responsibility. Equally, a finding of state responsibility does not relieve an individual of any criminal responsibility he or she may bear under international law for acts performed on behalf of the state. In short, state responsibility is without prejudice to individual criminal responsibility under international law, as recognised, for example, in Article 58 of the International Law Commission's Articles on Responsibility of States for Internationally Wrongful Acts. Conversely, just because an individual whose acts are attributable under international law to a state violates an international legal prohibition binding on him or her does not mean that the state is responsible for an international wrong. Nor does a finding of that individual's criminal responsibility under international law relieve the state on whose behalf he or she acts of any responsibility it may bear. That is, individual criminal responsibility under international law is without prejudice to state responsibility. This, for example, is recognised in Article 25.4 of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. In sum, each of the two forms of international responsibility, on the one hand, individual criminal responsibility, on the other hand, state responsibility, is the consequence of the violation of a different rule, or, putting it another way, of a rule binding on a different subject of international law. This so-called duality of responsibility was emphasised by the International Court of Justice in the application of the Genocide Convention case between Bosnia and Herzegovina and Serbia and Montenegro in relation inter alia to the massacre at Srebrenica. Well, I hope that has been of some use to you and I hope that has been of some enjoyment to you. That is that. <laughs>